there are some settings and some uh, locations and some situations where we're underutilizing uh, the best options that we have. But in most developed countries, and clearly in the U.S., we're just spending so much and we're wasting so much that healthcare is one of the leading public dangers for health. It's a major threat and something that uh, everyone who is interested in health needs to fight against. I think at some point we need to fight against medicine. It's becoming really dangerous. Echoing that age-old adage of first do no harm, that's one of the most influential scientists on the planet, John Ioannidis. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan, and welcome to a very special conversation that opens Season 2 of The Recommended Dose, the podcast encouraging a healthy questioning about healthcare, funded by Cochrane Australia and co-published by the BMJ. John Ioannidis is Professor at Stanford University in the United States. He's a global authority on genetics, on scientific evidence and on research about research. And he has that rare capacity to speak in language we can all understand and to deeply question at the same time. He's published more scientific papers than you can poke a stick at. He served on the editorial boards of 30 leading journals. And in his spare time, he's written seven books of literature, including this poem about a man looking back at all the disasters in his life, which we'll hear in full at the close of this podcast. He decided to make a cool appraisal of all the disasters that had afflicted him to attempt a lifelong evaluation, a reasonable and moderate, precise recording of calamities. First, his birth, a huge disaster, an enormous woe. They were the opening lines of, of a poem that John has promised to read us at the end of this interview. Apart from disasters, John, there's been a lot of successes uh, in, in your life too. One of them I want to talk about, one of your most famous papers, why most published research findings are false. Now, that's free online. Anyone can see it at PLOS Medicine. I checked and it, I think it's been viewed over two and a half million times already. There's some tough mathematics in there, but but can you give us a very brief, uh, simple summary of what you were saying in that article? Well, I think that this paper is a success about a disaster. It is trying to understand how likely it is that uh, a new research finding, a new study that appears in the scientific literature uh, would be wrong. And uh, it is using some mathematical modeling to try to account for the fact that uh, we are performing studies that may be small, that may be trying to chase uh, pretty subtle effects sometimes, that there are many researchers who are trying to uh, compete against each other rather than collaborate necessarily to try to answer these questions, that there is a multiplicity of uh, a very large number of questions and hypotheses that may be targeted, that there are biases in the process and uh, that the final product may be pretty uncertain. So that mathematical modeling is also juxtaposed against uh, what empirical evidence we have from how different types of designs and different types of settings of conducting research have done in terms of uh, how often we get results that can be replicated in additional studies versus something that cannot be replicated or seems to be very exaggerated. So in a nutshell, what did you argue in that piece? 
practically, if you go through the calculations, you see that in most circumstances, uh, it's very difficult to get it right with uh, the first shot, you know, with the first paper, the first time that you see something being published. Especially if you have uh, small studies, if you're chasing small effects, if you have more bias, if you have conflicts of interest, financial or other, if you have very complex databases, uh, lots of uh, freedom on how to analyze the data, all of these factors contribute towards getting you a literature that would be replete uh, with false findings. And in most scientific fields, including, of course, medicine, uh, and in most medical fields, probably the majority of these first discoveries and first passes and first results, first study insights that we get are false results. So are you saying that a lot of the studies, a lot of the claims that we hear, let's say, in the media, whether it's a, a link between genetic defects and an illness or it's about the, the benefits of a new drug, are you saying that they're simply not right? Many of these claims are indeed not right. And I think that it varies a lot from one field to another. The two examples that you mentioned, genetics and uh, uh, drug effects, could be pretty different. In genetics, uh, 10 years ago or more than that, almost everything that you would hear would be wrong because people were running very small studies and they were trying to cherry pick hypotheses that had very weak uh, statistical support. So almost everything was wrong. Uh, moving forward, currently almost everything that you hear in genetics about big studies with uh, extensive collaboration, with multiple teams sharing their data, with rigorous statistics, with uh, very careful analysis and sharing of all the data that are generated, plus replication across multiple teams, almost everything that you will hear is likely to be correct once these uh, recipes are in place. Uh, the question is still whether this is useful, but that's, I think, a different question. For drug effects, I think that there is quite uh, a gradient. There are some uh, trials about the effects of medications that can be very reliable because uh, they're very well done. They're randomized and carefully protected from bias and uh, uh, they have the appropriate outcomes and uh, uh, there's no conflicts of interest in the background. So I, I would trust those. There's also a very large proportion that uh, are highly unreliable and that they can also be big disasters. What kind of reception did that paper get? I mean, it was a very serious attack on, on a lot of the work that a lot of researchers do. I think that uh, I have avoided having uh, people threatening to assassinate me and uh, <laughs> uh, or, or, or uh, really fierce opposition. Uh, the, the good thing about this paper and also about much of the work that I do and other people are doing in uh, meta-research or research on research is that very often we're trying to have a bird's-eye view of what is happening and not focus on trying to shame anyone or trying to claim that this is the single horrible study that uh, the investigators need to be ashamed of. I think that uh, scientists, uh, we are trained to listen to arguments and I think we can tolerate the fact that millions of papers may be wrong. It's more difficult to tolerate if we're told that our single paper, our own single paper is wrong. Uh, so I think that probably this is why I'm still alive and have not been assassinated. Well, I'm very glad to hear that you're still alive. Um, one of the things you've argued, I think, is that we need to change the way we reward scientists. So start rewarding more the quality of what's done, not just the quantity. Is that right? And, and if so, how? 
I think that this is important. The, the rewards and incentive system is what will drive the production of whatever we cherish, whatever we think is valuable. Uh, so if we reward people for publishing more papers, this is exactly what we will get. We will get more papers. If we reward people for being successful to uh, get more money for their research, uh, we will have probably mostly managers uh, recruited to science who will be very good at making sure that they just just get all the money that there is. If conversely, we reward people for doing rigorous work, for uh, being very careful in thinking about biases and how to eliminate them or at least reduce them, in really thinking about hard questions and uh, rigorous methods to attack them, I think it's likely that we will get more of that. So it's where we invest and what we prioritize and uh, what we believe is essential. And I believe that clearly quality is more important than quantity. I have nothing against quantity, but uh, we need to secure quality, of course. One of the things we talk about a lot on this uh, podcast is is evidence, the importance of evidence. One of the recent articles I'd like to talk about, your recent articles, is called Evidence-Based Medicine Has Been Hijacked. Now, we before we talk about that, uh, that extremely provocative title, just a quick reminder briefly, w- w- what is evidence-based medicine? So evidence-based medicine uh, is uh, an effort to combine the best possible evidence with uh, an individualized approach to the patient and to the clinician judgment and his or her interaction with the patient. It has these two components. It has a systematic approach to the external evidence, to the scientific literature, to science, to the products of research. And then you have the physician-patient encounter, the interaction, which may be different in each case. As an idea, I think it's it's a fabulous idea, and it's something that uh, probably antedates uh, the coining of the word and the effort to push evidence-based medicine uh, forward uh, in the last uh, 25 years. However, uh, it has been hijacked because uh, there's lots of vested interests and uh, there's lots of stakeholders who are trying to use evidence or distorted evidence to serve their agendas. And I think this is where the problem arises. Can you give me an example of of one of the vested interests that you think are hijacking evidence-based medicine? So, first of all, there's very strong financial conflicts of interest. Uh, There's... um, Lots of stakeholders in medicine and health. Uh, We're talking a a multi-billion dollar uh, market, uh, sometimes uh, even for single drugs. And we're talking about uh, trillions of dollars when we come to the entire uh, health and uh, disease-related market. Uh, There's lots of companies that, uh, even though they may have R&D agendas. They also have very strong marketing agendas. They they really want to be leaders in that market, and that leads unavoidably to some very strong conflicts on what kind of evidence they will try to produce and how exactly they will try to disseminate it and use it to maximize their profits. There's even conflicts from physicians or from all of us who are involved in healthcare. It's uh, very difficult sometimes to disentangle from the fact that we are specialists, that we have uh, some reason of existence. And uh, our reasons of existence may be related to doing some particular procedures or doing uh, some 
type of medicine that may be threatened by evidence. How likely is it that we will design studies that will show that what we do is something that needs to be abandoned, that we need to change jobs? that uh, we're no relevant, we're not, uh, <laughs> we're not needed in order for people to have better health. I think that adds another layer of, uh, of conflict that is very difficult to, to disentangle. Then you have uh, lots of non-financial conflicts. You may have uh, people who want to defend their theories, they want to defend uh, their expertise. Uh, you have a lot of expert-based medicine that might be masquerading as evidence-based medicine or lots of eminence-based medicine that is trying to present itself with the tools of evidence-based medicine. There's so much to talk about. I mean, I think I'd recommend that piece to anyone who hasn't read it. Evidence-based medicine has been hijacked. It's, it's actually, I think I'm right in saying, it, an extraordinary critique of how medicine has lost its way in some ways. I, I mean, you actually say in there that in some places we have too much medicine, that, that healthcare itself has become a threat to human health. Why do you say that? Absolutely. I, I think that there's both uh, overuse and underuse of uh, of medicine in um, in healthcare there are some settings and some uh, locations and some situations where we're underutilizing uh, the best options that we have but in most developed countries and clearly in the US uh, we're just spending so much and we're wasting so much that healthcare is one of the leading public dangers for health uh, it's it's possible that our society will disintegrate just because we're wasting too much on trying to do too much that has very little evidence or even has evidence that it is unnecessary. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a major threat and something that uh, everyone who is interested in health needs to fight against. I think at some point we need to fight against medicine. It's becoming really dangerous. It's extraordinary to hear someone like you saying that. Is it time, do you think, for some kind of global commission to investigate and try and reduce the harms of healthcare? I think we need a global response and we also need a local response. Um, clearly, there are some issues that are permeating the, the entire global community and when it comes to, uh, for example, uh, trying to accumulate the best evidence and make sense of it, summarize it, and try to, to see what it says, we need to have the global evidence. At the same time, there's local challenges and each health system has its own balances and checks and some um, positive aspects and some negative aspects. So how exactly to fight the war in the trenches of each healthcare system is uh, is something that that's worthwhile studying beyond the level of having the global response of better evidence, more transparent evidence, uh, more unbiased evidence, which is obviously a high priority. So do you have ideas on, on how health systems can actually start to tackle the problem of the dangers of healthcare? I think this can be done at, at multiple uh, levels. Uh, one level is to try to make sure that we have evidence that matters and evidence that is unbiased. If you look across what uh, Cochrane has accomplished, we have all these thousands of systematic reviews. If you go back and, and check what are they telling us, the, the most common conclusion is that we don't really know. There are exceptions, but it's only a minority of the questions that do matter that have 
high quality evidence and evidence that is pretty conclusive for for action. So at a first level, we need evidence to be aligned with what really matters. We need useful clinical research. We need uh, research that can make a difference. And that means that there needs to be a problem rather than create a problem, because very often we are creating problems that don't exist by shifting the definition of disease and making people seem that they are sick, even though they're perfectly fine. We need to see what we already know and build on that. We need studies that will give us information, what I call information gain. We need to remove conflicts of interest. We need to think about the value of the investment in getting that evidence. We need to be pragmatic. We need to listen to patients and what their priorities are rather than what our priorities are. And of course, we need to protect ourselves from uh, optimism, from futility, just designing uh, towers of Babel type of studies that go nowhere and need to be abandoned or uh, have studies that are biased. So usefulness is one dimension. Another dimension is focusing on who is going to do that. Currently, most of that research is done funded by the industry. And I have nothing against the industry. We need the industry. And actually, they need to liberate their resources to do the real research that then would need to be tested by stakeholders who are unbiased. So the the current situation is that governments are putting a lot of money trying to do translational research to develop targets for companies then to develop drugs to test their effectiveness and their safety. Conversely, I think that it's the companies who should be doing the translational research because they would have every incentive to try to develop the very best technologies that would have the best chances and then have these technologies, be drugs or devices or biologics or whatever, be tested by independent bodies with independent funding, you know, with, with government funding, with public funding that can really tell us what really works and what does not work. If we have that, probably we have a more fair starting point and we can build on that. That recommendation echoes something that that, uh, the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, Fiona Godley, told us on on the recommended dose some time ago. I mean, she argued that that it seemed to her that industry should stop funding studies of their own products. Essentially, that's what you're arguing too. I, I fully agree. I think that it would be good for them as well because it does cost them tons of money. Their agenda unavoidably is inefficient because it becomes more of a marketing agenda rather than a research agenda. Uh, so it's it's a huge waste for governments. It's a huge waste for the industry. And of course, it's a huge waste for, for people and for patients. If a study is funded by a company with an interest in the outcome, um, should there be a a sort of an automatic red flag? I'm not not saying we should ignore the results, but in your mind, should there be an automatic red flag applied to the findings of that study? I I think that we have to be a bit cautious here because uh, it doesn't mean that every study that is funded by the industry is is wrong. Um, In fact, uh, if you look at uh, different types of quality assessment scales that have been applied over many years, currently research that is funded by the industry very often scores better on average compared to research that is not funded by the industry. But but this is very obvious why this is the case. If, if you're paying a lot of money and this is your product and you're waiting to 
make uh, tens of billions of dollars out of this effort, you don't really want to have people like me or some other crazy people like me uh, uh, <laughs> trying to come up with scales that will tell that you know your study was flawed. So company trials, they will do their best to check off the checklist and get a good grade in that checklist uh, that might be available to assess their trial. However, where the difference arises is mostly on how the study is designed, uh, what exact uh, question it is posing, how are the comparator arms are being chosen, are we dealing with the kind of straw man comparators that are being chosen, what kind of outcomes are being chosen, again, This could make a huge difference on whether the results are going to be quote-unquote successful and eventually how the study will be disseminated and promoted in the public view. So these studies may sound perfect sometimes, but they're just not asking the questions that are of, of real interest and of real importance. While we're on conflicts of interest, John, I think you've recently argued that for scientific research in the nutrition field, uh, there should be a different, higher standard for disclosure of potential biases. So I think you've argued scientists should disclose their their personal dietary biases or their personal diets. Well, why is that? So what I argued in, in that paper in, in JAMA, along with my colleague uh, John Trepanovsky, is that... Uh, we should give the opportunity to investigators to disclose very strong personal preferences. Uh, there's no way to disclose a personal preference unless one wants to do that. Exception, if someone is an advocate or an activist. If, this is not personal. This is public. If there's public advocacy or activism about something, this needs to be disclosed in the paper. It means that someone feels very strongly about it and has already expressed that in the public eye. Therefore, that disclosure is necessary and it's not different from what he or she does already by being an advocate in the public uh, uh, domain. In, in the situation where you don't have public advocacy, but you have someone having a very strong opinion about a particular diet, I think that we should encourage that person to disclose that particular preference because, uh, again, it's a situation where someone has some entrenched belief that this diet or this nutrient or this approach to nutrition is the best to go. I'm not saying this to shame anyone or to put anyone to shame. Uh, it could be actually an act of courage and an act of uh, uh, of getting credit down the road when everybody, who knows, down the road realizes that that was the best choice and it was indeed something that everyone should adopt. So in other words, if I'm just quietly a vegetarian or if I'm just quietly someone who likes eating the Mediterranean diet, um, you know, uh, that, that, then, then, then you're not expecting that to be disclosed. But, but if, no I'm on, if I'm on the public record as, as, as very uh, strongly advocating the Mediterranean diet, then you think that should be disclosed. Absolutely. Great. And in many cases, this even goes uh, to... Uh, indirect financial conflict. So you, you have lots of uh, public advocates of particular diets who have non-profit uh, foundations. Supposedly, they're not making money out of it. But uh, if someone has a non-profit foundation that does receive a lot of money and has a high visibility and or publishes books and becomes famous out of that, I mean, shouldn't really people know about it? 
You're listening to a conversation with John Ioannidis, a professor of medicine at Stanford who may be one of the most influential scientists alive, according to a profile in The Atlantic magazine. He's speaking with us today on the recommended dose from California. Among your key interests is genetics or genomics. Uh, For those of us who are not inside that world, can can you briefly explain what you mean by genomics? So genomics is a research agenda that is trying to understand uh, how genes affect our lives, how they affect our health, our risk of disease, the manifestations of disease, uh, and uh, what we can make of it. There's a sense that this is our genes and therefore maybe we should just take it for granted, but this is not the case. I mean, currently we can affect our genome, plus there's lots of environmental influences that interact with genes, and therefore if we modify the environmental influences, then possibly we could affect the way that these genes affect our lives. So in principle, human genomics is... uh, a very interesting field, and it could be pretty useful. We hear more and more enthusiastic promotion of how genomics uh, is going to revolutionise healthcare. It could bring enormous benefits. There's a lot of promise. There's a lot of optimism. Do you think we should all be feeling optimistic? So I, I'm I'm not necessarily a pessimist, but uh, I, I'm pretty sceptical about what we have achieved. Uh, clearly, we have achieved uh, a lot of information gathering. Uh, We have a pretty solid knowledge base about genomics that uh, has grown very rapidly over the last 20 years. Uh, We have learned a lot about the biology, about the complexity of many diseases. Uh, We come to realize that many of the common diseases that affect affect, uh, uh, very large numbers of people are highly genetic in nature, However, they're also extremely complex. They're, they're very convoluted. It's not that there's a one or a few targets or some low-hanging fruit that we can just take care of somehow and get rid of. Uh, you know, they're, they're very, very convoluted and very complex, uh, having hundreds and thousands of genes uh, interplaying and who knows how many environmental influences. There was a lot of optimism early on that uh, it will be an easy ride, that uh, we will easily understand the genetic underpinnings and then just work on them and have major benefits. This hasn't happened. There are a few cases, there is a few examples probably where uh, screening for our genes is useful for some diseases that have very strong genetic risk and where there is something to do about it. However, in the vast majority Uh, that information is not really going to tell us much at the moment in terms of how to change our life or how to change our uh, interventions or or medical treatments if it comes to uh, treating or preventing a disease. So it's uh, it's still work in progress. I'm uh, increasingly skeptical about its utility. It's absorbing a tremendous amount of uh, funding and uh, I think I have spent some of that funding myself <laughs> as well. Um, but uh, but in terms of, of its utility, I think that um, maybe we have to revisit what exactly we're doing. And, and maybe we still need to work on some 
genetics, genomics theme, but uh, try some new avenues, some some avenues that are not explored yet. Try some high-risk ideas rather than the ones that we have been pursuing for many, many years now. One of the articles that you published with colleagues a couple of years ago uh, that, that resonated with me, and I'm sure many other people, seems very relevant to mention here. It was called, What Happens When Underperforming Big Ideas in Research Become Entrenched? You essentially seem to debunk the idea that the combination of genetic science and information technology that's been around for a while now is going to dramatically improve human health. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. I think that uh, both of these ideas are very promising. They have many ramifications. They have many uh, potential disciplines uh, of uh, science who are currently working on them. They're absorbing tens of billions of dollars in funding, but they haven't delivered yet. And I think that uh, probably they will not deliver much unless we radically change our approach to uh, what are we trying to accomplish? So I, th- I think that it's very difficult to change course because once you have some ideas take uh, 50 or 60 or 70% of the research budget, you have hundreds of thousands of scientists absorbed in them. Uh, this is their career. This is their labs. This is their universities, their institutions. And it's not easy to say overnight that this is it. You know, just uh, go home. <laughs> And, and you don't want to do that because these are extremely smart people and very hardworking people and uh, they're really doing their best. But but how do we disengage or how do we say, please try something that is very different? We, we've tried that. We have been uh, hammering that nail again and again and we, we keep spending uh, tens of billions of dollars getting nowhere or, or getting very little out of that. This is, this is a big question. And I think that we need to find ways to really make the best of this uh, very smart workforce, but also give it the opportunity to diversify and to start attacking questions that have a higher chance of yielding something that is useful rather than ones that we have invested so much getting very little. Going back to what you said before about the dangers of medicine, the dangers of healthcare, a previous guest on the recommended dose, uh, Paul Glasview, has said that in his view, the genetic testing of healthy people is a looming disaster and and could cause a a tsunami of overdiagnosis. What, What do you think of that view? I would think that it's more likely to be mostly useless uh, rather than necessarily a disaster, although I like the word disaster, as you can tell, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a disaster. I would generalize it to include any type of testing. So it could be genetic, it could be any sort of testing that currently can be done in a more massive scale. Um, when we're trying to deal with people who have no health problem, who feel perfectly healthy, perfectly asymptomatic, uh, and they're not really asking for medical health. Whatever we decide to do with these people, we have to be extremely careful uh, because sometimes we may find some information that we may may be able to make some use of in preventive terms. Uh, Clearly, I'm very interested in prevention, uh, and there are some examples where screening for disease has been useful, like uh, pop test, and it was a very good idea. I think that it managed to decrease the risk of, uh, of death from cervical cancer substantially. But we have many examples of uh, 
screening test that uh, really did nothing for us or actually just caused a lot of overdiagnosis and uh, lots of wasted resources and additional testing and treatments that just had no benefit. And, and we have far more examples of that latter category of useless waste rather than the former category of this is something that was really worth it and it really helped people and saved lives. So I, I think that now that we can test not just a couple of things, but a couple of million of things or a couple of billion of things, obviously the the risks are are getting much higher that we can easily waste our efforts and our resources and our lives just collecting information that doesn't get us anywhere. John, it strikes me that people like you, people like Paul Glasiew, you know, some of the people listening, many perhaps listening to this podcast, have, have got enough information to help protect themselves from the dangers of unnecessary testing and unnecessary treatments. But a lot of others haven't really got that you know, haven't really read all the papers that you've read. How on earth can you can you spread this intelligence? Can you help people unconnected to the healthcare system, help them protect themselves from the, the harms of healthcare and obviously enjoy the benefits of it? This is a major challenge and I think that uh, we really need a concentrated and coordinated effort to improve literacy and uh, numeracy in, in the wider general public. And how to do that, I think we have not enough evidence to know what is the best approach. There's some evidence that probably this is something that needs to be done starting at a very young age, probably starting in elementary school. Uh, people uh, need to be informed at, at a formative age and not just wait for the last moment after they have been exposed to tons of noise and tons of nonsense. And maybe it's too late by that time. There's evidence that uh, kids, uh, 8, 10-year-old kids, they can understand experimental design. They can understand some key issues about the scientific method. I, I think we need to work on that. We need to work on what we are communicating to the population at large. And uh, obviously, I will never say that we need to communicate less science, we need to communicate more science, but we also need to find ways to communicate science in the proper context and in the pro proper light and in the, the context of what it means and whether it's something that is just for your curiosity or something that you should use to change your life. Uh, we're making very poor distinction between these notions of what is just curiosity and what is something that you need to do because otherwise you will die or, or have some major consequences. Do you think the media has some blame here, some responsibility here, if you will? I mean, it strikes me that that a lot of a lot of media reporting, and in fact, I and others have done studies on this. A lot of media reporting on healthcare is much more like promotion than rigorous journalism. Uh, do you see that as a problem too? And 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 are there prospects to change that? I think that this is a superimposed pr uh, problem that makes things worse. B by default, uh, lots of media are trying to exaggerate uh, and they're trying to create stories that would catch attention, probably oversimplify the narrative and create extreme contrasts. 
And uh, science is sometimes more subtle. It's uh, about modest differences, pros and cons, balanced, nuanced situations that you need to have a very temperate and a very moderate approach to how you're communicating information. I, I think that media could also be a major player in transforming the understanding of uh, science and medicine and medical evidence by the population. So it's uh, it's clearly a frontier that uh, we need a lot of work. Just to finish off our discussion about genetics and genomics, another of the phrases that we're hearing a lot of these days, a lot more of, is is personalised medicine or precision medicine. Um, there, there are critics around who say that if we embrace this uh, too prematurely, it could cause a lot of harm and waste. But the, the promoters are saying that it's already here and we have to embrace it. What's your view? So I think that there's already a lot Uh, of discussion about precision medicine and personalized medicine, and there's a lot of information that indeed is available. So we cannot just uh, uh, ignore it. We need to deal with it and we need to appraise what it means and whether it can be used uh, and whether we can gain something out of it. Uh, I'm neither uh, a strong optimism nor a a strong pessimist in that regard. Uh, probably I'm skeptical about what can be achieved, and I think that most of the narratives about precision medicine, really transforming medicine, are in, infested with a lot of hype. Uh, it's it's a an effort in the right direction in the sense that it is very much aligned with what evidence-based medicine is about. As, as we started our discussion, you asked me what is evidence-based medicine, and I mentioned that one of the two core components is that individualization. You know, we're talking about individual patients, individual clinicians, and the interaction of the individual clinician with the individual patient. This is exactly precision. It's personalized. So this is not new, and in that regard, I think this is a good idea. Where the problem arises is that if you're trying to generate evidence that is tailored only to that single patient or that single patient-physician pair, then this is very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult to get reliable evidence even for the average patient running large studies with hundreds and thousands of participants. If you want to get the same level of reliability for the single individual, most of the time you will not be able to get that. You need to borrow strength from what has happened to other people, some of which, some of whom may be pretty similar, but others may be a bit dissimilar. And you need to decide whether the dissimilarity is sufficient to uh, make you think that that's not something that I want to consider as evidence that would affect my patient. Most of the time, we still need to depend on traditional tools of randomized trials, average effects, meta-analysis, summary of results across multiple patients to inform what is the best choice for the single patient. There will be some situations where we will have highly tailored evidence relevant to single or a few participants. By definition, this is relevant to one or a few people. So each one of these successes will not really save a lot of the population-level burden of disease. Precision medicine, in its own roots, is doomed to be insignificant. However, if you build many, many millions of single patients with personalized evidence, then you start catching up and you start getting something 
that could also have an impact on the burden of disease. So it's it's a possibility, but it, it's it's not a panacea. It, it, it's fascinating to hear you reflect on this because these are these are such important questions for for all of us in our own lives, but for for the people who run health systems as well. I mean, in Australia and elsewhere, it it, it seems to me that part of the promotion of precision medicine is actually calling for us to to water down existing regulations, existing evaluation regimes, um, for the reasons that you outline. I mean, do do you see any danger? That that the that the gains that have been made in the last thirty years in trying to improve uh, more rigorous methods of evaluation of, of new technologies and new drugs, do you see a danger that precision medicine is go- is going to knock them down? Uh, there's clearly a risk, and I think that there's lots of people who are trying to remove randomized controlled trials uh, from where. Uh, they are right now, where they occupy a very central role in appraising new technologies, new drugs, new devices, and and so forth. I I think this is risky business. I think that um, there are a few exceptions where probably the personalized effects are going to be so clear-cut and so huge that probably we don't need randomized trials. Based on what I have seen so far, this is really the exception. It may become a bit more common, but it's still going to be the exception, I think, for many, many years. And it may be the exception even at, at the best circumstances and at any time in the future. So I think that the the effort to dismantle randomized trials is really dangerous. And it may really get us back to where we were in the 1900s, where we just had observations with uh, a little bit of suboptimal control data that uh, were highly misleading. We're going to change gear in a moment and go to a more sort of personal interview, if you will. But but before we do, it it strikes me there's a, an incredibly strong line of scepticism running through a lot of what you say, um, and and causing you to see the dangers, see the potential harms. Uh, clearly, a lot of listeners will 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 be sympathetic to that view. But when those views are shared publicly, is there a danger that they can be seen as 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 undermining science, as 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 an attack on science, rather than a, 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 an attempt to improve science. There there are lots of people who are uh, coming up with anti-science agendas, uh, and this is becoming more uh, prominent over the years. We have seen, for example climate change denialism and uh, vaccine denialism and HIV denialism and uh, lots of uh, of crazy thoughts. Uh, obviously, you know, these people that have these views, they may utilize uh, any statement by anyone as a weapon to promote their agendas. Uh, however, I think the, the best way to defend science is to stand firm on what the scientific method is about, how difficult science is, how difficult it is to get it right, and and why we need to do the best effort, put the the best of the best together to try to get uh, a reasonable answer that eventually would also be useful. I don't think that we are defending science if we're telling that, uh, oh, uh, everything is so spectacular, uh, everything is uh, working so easy, uh, 
we are so powerful. Uh, everything is at the tip of our fingers. Uh, we can make you immortal and uh, cancer will go away uh, within a week. Uh, you know, this is not reality. Science is about understanding and describing reality. And if the reality is tough, we need to be tough. And we need to be tough with ourselves. And I think that this is more likely to gain the respect of the general public. If you have dogmatists on one side who are most anti-science voices and scientists on the other side who take a more temperate, more skeptical, more healthy skeptical approach to what they communicate uh, to others. So now, John, we're going to sort of move a little bit into your personal life, if we can, um, and talk a little bit about your life and career. C- can we can we go back to that birth that <laughs> that you might have described as a disaster? I think, um, although we're not sure it's your birth. It's it's it was it was the poetic birth. <laughs> this is just the the hero of the text. <laughs> yeah. So so. <laughs> Um, so you're born in New York, but you're you're raised in Greece. T- tell us a little bit about your childhood, the family, the place, uh, the roots of who you are. So I, I have ping ponged between continents during uh, my entire life. Uh, I was uh, born in New York, uh, grew up in Athens, uh, then went back to the states, uh, the East Coast, uh, then went back to Europe, uh, then uh, went back to the states in the West Coast uh, in California. Um, my childhood was mostly in uh, in Athens. Uh, my parents were both physician scientists, so there was always both the element of uh, the uh, medical doctor uh, around, but also the element of the scientist around. And um, I I think that that was clearly a a very strong influence. Uh, Growing up in Athens uh, was really fabulous. Greece is a very beautiful country. The, The people are very friendly and uh, I mean these these are years that uh, I, I believe most of us think of our childhood as blessed time and unless there are some problems of course uh, but uh, yeah I, I think that uh, it was really fabulous being in that place and, and growing up there. I think you had an early love affair with mathematics is that right? Yes so I, I always uh, love mathematics and uh, um, even when I was uh, uh, three-year-old uh, little kid. Uh, it, it was like uh, a show that uh, the friends of the family would uh, would gather together and uh, they would start asking me to uh, calculate uh, weird calculations that I would give the responses uh, very quickly. And and then when I was uh, uh, eight uh, or so. I started creating uh, a, a list of uh, who I love the most. And uh, it, it was a ranking that included uh, numbers, uh, numbers with uh, with decimal points, and and the, the list was being revised every week or so, depending on uh, whether my mom or my grandmother or uh, uncles or whoever uh, were willing to be good with me. So you know, I would add them two point seventy two points uh, for. <laughs> <laughs> for every <laughs> gift that they would make, <laughs> that, that, um, that does so, sound uh, a little. That does sound a little bit scary. I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I always wanted to to quantify, uh, you know, even love. Uh, I, I, if it could be quantified, I I, I felt much more secure, and um, I, I think that eventually, when I had that interface between mathematics and medicine, I felt that we need more mathematics. We we need more numbers, more more quantitation in medicine. Do you still think love can be quantified? Uh, no, I, I think I have failed miserably in that regard. Uh, but science never has the final word. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you became a doctor in Greece, and I think you worked briefly in the military. Is that right? Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting story. Um, so when I was uh, uh, elected um, uh, as faculty uh, in uh, in a Greek medical school, all Greek medical schools are uh, state institutions. They're public institutions. And uh, to have an appointment in a public institution, you have to serve in the military like every other Greek citizen who lives in Greece and, and has a public appointment. Uh, so I was both uh, a U.S. and a Greek citizen. And in order to take that appointment uh, in Greece, I had to serve six months in the Navy. Yes. <laughs> so how was six months in the Navy? How did you, what, you know, you don't strike me as a military, oh, military man, but how was it? Uh, I, I think it was kind of a surrealistic experience. Um, much of the time I spent uh, in a, a naval base uh, where a lot of uh, the submarines and the frigates of the, the Greek Navy uh, are stationed and I was uh, responsible for, for patients. Uh, this included uh, lots of uh, recruits uh, who had uh, mental problems. You know, I, th I think that that was uh, quite a scary experience to see these young people probably under the, the stress of uh, the uh, experience of being uh, recruited and having to, to, to do that, um, losing their mind. And um, it, it, it was quite an interesting experience. I mean, it, 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 it made me think a lot about um, lots of things, about... For example, whether military is necessary, uh, whether um, we could do more for peace, uh, how is civilization investing its resources, um, how can we really help young people thrive and become much better than, than we are. Um, it, it, it was a very valuable experience in that regard. It, it, I've got to say it reminds me of, of the book Catch-22 a little bit too. Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> I think when you visit Greece uh, these days, you, you stay in a, in a tiny cottage on a tiny island with your family. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that island and and perhaps some of your favourite spots there? So we we love Greece and we want to spend as much time there as possible. Uh, that tiny island that you refer to probably is Antipaxi, where uh, I have been going every summer since probably 2000, uh, so for the last uh, 18, 19 years uh, with uh, my wife and, uh, and my daughter. Um, it's a tiny island in the Ionian and we uh, rent a small cottage in the middle of the island. There's no hotels. There's uh, only two tavernas that close at 5 p.m. And uh, it's a little bit like uh, being all alone in, uh, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is very refreshing. 
I bet. Uh, well, while we're on that, it's personal. Just just quickly, I mean, when you or your loved ones has a health problem, given your scepticism, given your knowledge, how do you interact with the system? Do do you do you search for a systematic review? What what, what do you do? Uh, clearly, I try to to get the most systematic and unbiased information as a start. Uh, my bias is to avoid contact with the healthcare system unless you really want it. So very often I hear my mom, for example, saying that I have this and this and that, and I try to make sure that she really needs to see someone or do something because most of the time the best solution is just forget it. <laughs> um, but sometimes you you may need to interact with uh, the healthcare system and you, you could get uh, a successful interaction out of it. I think that uh, you need to find the best evidence and try to stick to that. And this is not easy when you are the patient or one of your loved one is the patient. So it's... Um, it's difficult to to be your own physician. You you need um, uh, or or be a physician of of people who you love. You need someone who is uh, equally trained with the same premises, with the same standards, with the same uh, principles to be involved. And hopefully, I know several such colleagues who are very well trained and they're very good in evidence based approaches. Alongside being one of the world's most influential scientists, um, you also write a lot of fiction. Um, wh- what do you write that fiction about? So I'm, I'm not sure that I would necessarily classify it as fiction. Uh, I think that uh, all the uh, critics who have written about my work, uh, the, the most difficult question of, for them is, what exactly is John writing? Uh, and I don't think that they have come up with a good uh, reply. I, I used to... Uh, like the term experimental writing or uh, mixed techniques. Uh, so it, it, it could include fiction, it could include poetry, it could include other tools or a hybrid set of, of methods. And this is something that I, I tremendously enjoy doing. I think it's uh, offering me a, a different angle or, or viewpoint to, to my life. I, I write since uh, I was a little kid and uh, I have published six books in Greek. The seventh one will be coming out in a few months. A lot of people listening, including me, uh, want to know how on earth you are so productive. It's, it's one of the most obvious things about you that people must find very confusing. You've served on the editorial boards of, I think, 30 leading journals. You've, I think you've published close to a thousand academic papers. You're constant, constantly flying around the world giving presentations on top of all the poetry and the fiction and so on. What, what is the secret? I don't know. Uh, I think probably I'm a maniac uh, <laughs> to some extent uh, or even a classic case. Uh, and um, I, I think that uh, I, I enjoy having a variety of, of exposures and a variety of, of modes of expressing what I feel and what I think. I can work in very weird places. So traveling on the plane is wonderful protected time. Uh, you can work during the entire flight. I can shift gear between uh, working on uh, a literary text and working on a paper or working on a protocol at, within the same time block and I, I just enjoy enormously learning from lots of smart people who interact with me. I, I think I feel entirely pri- privileged to 
uh, have the chance to to interact with with so many brilliant people. I, I have been uh, really blessed in that regard to to meet with lots of young people, young, not necessarily age, although many of them are also young in age, but young in spirit and young in mind, and share ideas and brainstorm and uh, think about what might be next steps. So I, I try to enjoy whatever I do, and uh, I also try to say no to whatever I do not enjoy. Uh, and that's not easy, but I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> I, I know you read a huge amount of, of fiction yourself. Are there any books in your life, fiction books or, or non-fiction for that matter, that, that you want to share with the, with the listenership now that, that you'd recommend, real standouts? So it's, it's very hard to just pick one thing. I think that my choices for uh, modern literature are, are a bit too classic uh, and, and too anticipated. But, uh, uh, for example, I love James Joyce and uh, uh, I love Siebald. Um, uh, like, you know, Austerlitz, I think, is, uh, is clearly a masterpiece. My, my taste is, is, is very... Uh, kind of commonplace when it comes to literature. I I, I like I like the the big uh, great writers. You know Dostoevsky uh, is clearly amazing. Uh, I also like reading a lot of history. Um, sometimes uh, books that are a bit esoteric about the uh, history of little places or unknown places that nobody knows about, and trying to catch little details uh, or historical records, uh, papyri from uh, ancient Egypt or, or inscriptions from ancient Greece. Some of these texts eventually find their ways in, in my own weird writings, uh, in bits and pieces thereof. So, yeah, uh, very fragmented. <laughs> Given that background, John, with, with those physician scientist parents, where did this love of literature come from? I think that probably it's the fact that there were always lots of books uh, around me. And uh, even as a little kid, I enjoyed just swimming in books that I would throw them on the floor and start reading uh, multiple books at the same time and just enjoying that tremendously. It's uh, it's something that I have not avoided since. So I'm, I'm still swimming in books, uh, either physically or electronically. Beautiful. What a lovely image to leave uh, swimming, swimming in books. Thank you, John. I hope our paths cross again one day. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ray. I hope to see you again soon. A million thanks. The amazing John Ioannidis on The Recommended Dose. If you've enjoyed it, please let others know about it and tune in to some of the other conversations in this podcast. Thanks to Jan Mutz for the editing and to the indefatigable Shauna Hurley and Cochrane Australia for production. And thanks too to the BMJ for co-publishing. And to take us out, as promised, John Ioannidis reading his poem, Harvesting Disasters. Harvesting Disasters. He decided to make a cool appraisal of all the disasters that had afflicted him to attempt a lifelong evaluation, a reasonable and moderate precise recording of calamities. First, his birth, a huge disaster, an enormous woo. In itself, his birth alone was sufficient to kill him. He was conceived elsewhere, born elsewhere. There mediate white letters, all white snow, cherry blossoms, a beautiful young woman, and other such inhuman, terrible, awkward, and monstrous stuff. Second disaster, 
in the first three months of his life. I keep it silent, a taboo. They had told him about it, even though he didn't live it. So it must have been terribly real. Third disaster somewhere in his seventh to ninth year. Long drone calamity with a protracted tale of five or six years before he found some relief again in his high performance in mathematics, especially in commutative and homological algebra, but also in the hyperbolic geometry of Lobachevsky. Fourth disaster at age 22. This disaster in particular is responsible for his entire life. Whatever he did, he did so as not to forget, ever. And indeed, he never forgot her, while she, she did not even notice that she had torn him to pieces, that she had thoroughly devastated him. Fifth disaster at age 25. That one he even engineered it himself. Disaster engineering. He caused it as a controlled explosion that would self-traumatize him. He was playing for years with gunpowder, TNT, and poems, so he set it off with confidence. Sixth disaster at age 33. It was the first time that a disaster surprised him, the first time that he already was sufficiently suspicious and alerted from past disaster to be surprised. He lost everything in no time without having predicted even the slightest calamity. He took his hat off to the disaster. How ingenious she had been. Seventh disaster at age 44. The fearest of all. It was unthinkable that he could carry on. He woke up in summer from a lethargy with tinnitus in a ship sailing to Naxos, full of happy vacationers and carefree tourists. He almost lost his mind from this absurd, outrageous, wicked sight. Eighth disaster at age 51. He had been expecting her. He had kept notes. He had prepared his answer. He had written his public apology. Not that he could prevent her. Let's not fool ourselves. Disasters cannot be averted. Simply, this was the first time that he systematically prepared himself to be destroyed. He felt proud that they were destroying him, as if he witnessed the completion of a splendid public project. In short sequence, the ninth disaster followed suit at age 52. Totally unpredictable. It humiliated him right when he thought that from now on at least he could foresee with clarity, with some superior resignation, his extermination. For none of the nine disasters did he ever dare publish anything. Only minced words, cover-ups, indirect mentions, obscure hints, ghosts, unsupported speculations, cravings, unfounded beliefs, reasonable betrayals. In short, only his entire life. Quite a disaster. Quite a disaster. 